The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. So when Pete uh, told me that uh, the summer preaching series was going to be my favorite story, um, that was very easy uh, for me. My favorite story comes from Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 35 through 41. It's the story of Jesus with the disciples in the boat in the midst of the storm. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that this morning. But before I read the text for us, let me just say a couple things. When I was in seminary, we had a professor who every single class would get us as a group of students to repeat uh, certain phrases every single morning. And one of those phrases we had to repeat every single day of seminary was context is king. Context is king. Uh, the reason he had to say this is to remind us that Every single story in Scripture has a certain context. It has a cultural and historical context. It's got the context of the genre it's written in, and it's got a gospel context. Where this story fits into the, the grand narrative, the arc of redemption that God is doing in the midst of his people. So you have to remember that, that context is king. The problem is that we, and by we I mean the church, Christians included, we tend to take scripture out of its context very easily and when we do that the meaning the power the weight of what God is trying to communicate to us in those stories um, it, 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 it loses something right so we have to keep uh, context uh, of, of the passage uh, there's some really repeat offenders of this of taking uh, scripture out of context uh, the, the probably primary passage that's taken out of context, is 1 Samuel 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. Uh, maybe you've heard a, a message that's gone something like this. That just as David defeated Goliath, with God's help, you too can defeat the giants in your life. Now, is that totally incorrect? No. right? With God's help, right, we can defeat and have victory over uh, giants in our life, like the giant of sin, right? We can do that with the Lord's help, but is that the point of that text? No. Right here you have David, the uh, anointed would-be king of Israel, who is very unassuming. He's coming humbly in the name of the Lord to stand up against this enemy, the greatest, most imposing enemy that this people in Israel has ever seen in their lifetime. The one to whom they cower in fear, it's David coming in the strength of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, in the, the power of the Lord to have victory over this enemy and then save his people. The gospel context is that that points to Jesus, the one who is the king of Israel, who comes very unassuming and humbly in the name of the Lord, in the strength of the Lord, in the power of the Lord, because he is the Lord. And he declares victory over our greatest enemy. And he saves his people. Another repeat offender of taking the passage out of context comes with our story today. I would know this because about 12 years ago, I preached my very first sermon on this passage. And I took it out of context. <laughs> um, my message went something like this, that just as the disciples looked to Jesus to calm the storm in their midst, if you have faith in looking to Jesus in faith, he will calm the storms in your life. Now, is that totally wrong? No, 
Not necessarily, but, but here's the catch. What if you are looking to Jesus in great faith and he doesn't calm the storm? What happens then? The subtitle in your Bibles of this passage may say something like, Jesus calms the storm. But what I want us to see this morning is ultimately it's not about just Jesus calming the storm. That in context, that this passage is all about the incarnation of God Almighty, the maker of all things, the judge of all men, who has come to earth to be with us, to be present with us, to sympathize with us, and to save us from our greatest enemy of sin and all of its effects, all of its consequences. This passage screams to us, Jesus cares about you. He cares about you in this life, and he cares about you in the next life. And just as Paul said in Galatians, that for freedom, Christ has set us free. As we begin to, to dive into the text this morning, what I want us to see, our main theme, is that Jesus' care for us gives us freedom. Jesus' care for us gives us freedom. So that's our main theme. Just a couple of points that we'll talk about is the wonder of Christ and then the answer of Christ. So let me pray for us and then I'll read the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we come before you knowing uh, that we can only come to you by your mercy and your grace through Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Lord, we need you to speak a good word to us. Um, Lord, may your people hear from you and not just a man. Would you soften our hearts to be receptive to your word? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. This is Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, a friend of mine asked me a few months ago about my best friend. He said, Luke, are you aware of how cynical you are? And I said, well, I thought I was until you asked me that question. Uh, maybe I don't give myself enough credit. Do we, we, we tend to baptize our cynicism uh, as wisdom. Uh, but what we're doing is we're just trying to put up our guard against uh, being hurt. Or disappointed. The late uh, comedian uh, George Carlin, he once said, scratch any cynic and you'll find a disappointed idealist. And I, think he's, I think he's right. How do you know you're cynical? How do you know you're cynical? If you've said nothing good could ever come from blank, you know what that blank is. Nothing good could ever come from blank. You're, you're cynical. There's a disciple of Jesus who said, nothing good could ever come from Nazareth. Nothing good could ever come from Galilee. That's cynicism. If you look at someone who is uh, regularly um, happy and, and full of energy, you know, those bubbly people, 
uh, that kind of annoy you, uh, um, and you think, why are they so chipper? That's, that's cynicism. If you look at others' posts on social media, you know, the, the perfectly uh, made meal and the hundreds of pictures of their model-esque children and, um, you know, the, the recent Mediterranean vacation they went on that you're really jealous of and uh, the status about that new uh, job that they're going to get and you feel contempt, you're cynical. If someone compliments you and you think, oh, they're probably just being nice, or if someone's especially nice to you and you think, I wonder what they want from me, you're, you're cynical. If you start questioning the news in an unhealthy way, now, I've got to be honest, you know, um, every uh, news outlet comes with a certain narrative, right? It has a certain bias, and you have to have the wisdom and discernment to navigate those narratives, right? Um, but, but not everything is a big media conspiracy or government cover-up, right? Not everything is hashtag fake news. That's cynicism. If you're always fearing the worst, but count it just as preparedness, you're cynical. Why do I say this? There are really two times of the year, two major times of the year, where your cynicism is most likely to be at its fullest measure. Okay, the, the, uh, the first one is pretty obvious. It's Christmas time. Right, Christmas time. Uh, I know it's June. I'm talking about Christmas. Just bear with me. Okay. Um, Christmas time allows you to assess the year behind you and look forward to the year ahead, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you're at that point and you think, I've had a pretty great year. Maybe you haven't had such a great year. Uh, but at minimum, you have experienced things in your life, these different events, these different moments that are tinged with hardship and struggle and most definitely sin. And then uh, for about six weeks at the end of the year, you're inundated with Christmas songs. Right in a coffee shop, on your radio, and department stores, uh, Christmas songs uh, can either temporarily mask your cynicism, or it can fuel your cynicism. Here's what I mean by that: it can mask it by knowing the reality of life and, and all of its difficulties, right? All the struggle that you face, but at the same time, thinking, you know, it would just be so good just for a little while to lose myself in the nostalgia of the season. I, I, I see the news. I know what's going on around me. I hear about you know, the, the tariffs. I hear about the, uh, the impending recession that's coming at some point. I hear about the housing crisis. I hear about the slavery and trafficking of people, most of whom are children all around the world. I see that. I see, I see news about wars and political strife. But at least for a while, can't I just dream of peace on earth? I just want to dream of peace on earth. We hear songs of, of like Christmas of friends and family getting together around a hearth. What's a hearth? Any of you have a hearth? <laughs> but then you think, this time of year, I, I feel probably the loneliness um, of the loneliest I've, I've ever felt all, all year. And have you seen my family? They're crazy. I don't, I don't want to spend time with them. That's work. But at least for a while, can I live vicariously just for a time dreaming of loving relationships? Christmas songs can also fuel cynicism. 
uh, songwriter T-Bone Burnett in his song, The Wild Truth, not a Christmas song. Uh, he said, whatever happened to the man walking down the street with his hands in his pockets, whistling a tune, science fiction and nostalgia have become the same thing. In the past few months, probably the, well, most definitely, um, the, the hardest day uh, that I have ever had, um, or at least have had in years and years and years, came a couple days before Christmas. Um, got into a, uh, an argument with a family member and brought up a lot of uh, ancient hurt. Um, and then in the background, as I'm thinking through this, this altercation that happened, I'm hearing from the, the radio that's playing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. You know, and I'm thinking, that feels about as true to me as grandma got run over by a reindeer. We talk about the wonder of Christmas in that season and the wonder of Christ. But for many of us, the wonder of Christ is simply wondering whether the peace and the joy and the hope of Christ that we sing about is real. So that's the first time of year uh, where our cynicism can be at its, at its peak. What's the other time of year? It's right now. It's in the middle of the summertime. Or we can assess the year that has, has been already, right? We're six months in, right? We can look ahead to, to what's coming. Um, I know it's Father's Day. I want to pick on dads for a little bit. Um, this is the time when you realize, man, these are long, hot days. Uh, kids are, are out of school, at least for a little while, which means getting used to new schedules uh, for, for everyone. You have potential for... Uh, more more time with your kids, but are you really utilizing it? Maybe wanting to escape the heat, go on vacation, but you don't have the time or the money to do that, and suddenly you start to feel the burden of not being able to provide your family as well as you wish that you could. You're wondering how half the year has flown by so quickly, and you haven't gotten done everything that you had intended. You feel the shame that's brought back up of New Year's resolutions that have been long since broken. Six months of failing at something. Six months of failing someone. Wondering how you're going to salvage the year. And you celebrate Father's Day and you're not sure if you've parented your children any better than your parents have parented you. And with all the idols still standing in your life, and with the new ones that you've constructed, you wonder, have I even grown spiritually? There's no nostalgia in this season that can help you escape your burdens, and you are feeling crushed under their weight. And still you wonder, is the peace and the hope and the joy of Christ real? Our text says that it was evening when the storm came. It was dark. Water was filling the boat. And the disciples were scared. And Jesus was asleep. And then comes the cynicism. Don't you care? This is Mark's gospel, which means it's Peter's account of the life of Jesus. Can't you hear Peter saying that? Lord, don't you care? Don't you care about us? We're perishing. Do you think that you would have asked Jesus the same question? 
you have. I have, right? These are the indicting questions that we ask of the Lord in the darkness when we're scared and the storms come. We wonder whether God cares as we ask questions of of what, why, how long, how much more can we take of this? This is a real storm. It's a real storm that is really threatening. This is the kind of storm that the disciples knew killed people. It's every bit as real as the storms that we face in our life when you're scared and you wonder whether, whether God cares about you. When you ask those questions, how could we possibly survive this? And it seems like your faith is so distant and it's so fragile and it's so small. You know those times? My wife, uh, for the very first Christmas that we, um, we were together, she gave me uh, her favorite book, which is J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Um, I didn't read it all, and she knows that. Um, um, but I actually, I did read the ending, um, which she got mad at me about. <laughs> um, but there, at, towards the, the very end, if you've ever read that book, um, Wendy is an adult, and she has a, a, a baby girl, a, a small daughter, and, and her daughter Jane asked her this question. She says, Mother, why can't you fly now? Because I'm all grown up, dearest. When people grow up, they forget the way. Why do they forget the way? Because they're no longer gay and innocent and heartless. It's only the gay and innocent and heartless who can fly. When we experience the realities of the trials of life, the difficulties that we face, real hurt, real confusion, real disappointment, there's a certain loss of innocence, isn't there? We can't fly. We don't feel like we can fly anymore. We're no longer innocent. That's why you hear people say, I don't have the faith I did when I was younger. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. But here's the point. Jesus cares for us in such a way that it gives us the freedom to ask the big, hard, ugly questions. Like, don't you care? Do you even hear me? Do you even see me, Jesus? He gives us the freedom to ask this. Uh, Derek Kidner was an Old Testament theologian, and he was writing on the Psalms, and and he uh, he was talking about these two particular Psalms that a lot of people wonder why are in the Bible, because... Uh, It's Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, and they're not really hopeful. They don't really give you any sense of hope. And and so it's like, well, they're not kind of happy and joyful. Why on earth did God allow them to be put into Scripture? Um, They don't make me feel any better. (laughs) And Kidner says this. He says, the very presence of these hard prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. He knows how men speak when they're desperate. Look, in our text, Jesus lets the disciples uh, get in his face and speak this way to him to, to ask the big, hard, ugly questions because he knows how men speak when they're desperate and he identifies with their suffering. He identifies with suffering. Notice the text. There was a great storm and then great peace, but there was little faith. There was little faith. Jesus didn't wait until the disciples had great faith to calm the storm, did he? If he had waited until they, they had more faith for him to act, then 
what he did would have been in some sense deserved, but, but he didn't. For Jesus to meet their need in the midst of their doubt and their fear and their cynicism demonstrates he's not just a God who can calm storms and still seas, but he's a God of grace who comes to the aid of those with little faith who don't deserve to be rescued. That's who this God is. He's the God who comes down from heaven and takes on humanity to sympathize with us, to feel what we feel, to go through what we go through in this life, to be tempted as we're tempted, and to live in perfect righteousness for us. And then with great patience, he lets someone whom he himself has created get in his face, put a finger in his chest, full of cynicism and fear and doubt, and say, don't you care about me? Don't you care? This is what we wonder of Christ. Don't you care? But the one who is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, the incarnate God, is with them in the boat. This is the answer of Christ. He's with them in the boat. Do you care? Of course he cares. The one to whom these men have prayed to since they were young and knew how to pray, is the one who's in the boat with them. The one whom Psalm 72 says helps and delivers those who call upon him in need is in the boat with them. You can have faith in Jesus and still experience troubling times, can't you? Jesus actually promised this in John 16. He says, look, you're going to face persecution you're going to face uh, suffering, some, some dangerous times. You're going to be confused, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He's being realistic about life, right? But he's also saying that pain and hope are not mutually exclusive, right? Well, what we experience in life's difficulties and in our suffering, it makes us ask the question, do you care? And there are many people, and, and I don't know, maybe you're one of these, who say, you know, everything that I've seen, everything that I've experienced, um, all of the facts that I have leads me to believe that God doesn't care. Dorothy Sayers was a um, contemporary of C.S. Lewis. She was a, a writer, a great um, writer of theology, but also uh, she wrote uh, Murder Mysteries, the Lord Peter Whimsey series. And there's one story where a friend of Lord Peter Whimsey is, is up um, on trial for murder. And the authorities tell Lord Peter, Sir, all of the known facts are against her. And he said, Yes, but all of the known facts aren't all the facts. All the known facts aren't all the facts. Look, when, when you experience suffering, when you don't have you don't have all the facts about what God is doing, do you? Just because you can't figure the answer out to the the what, the when, the why, the how long of your suffering doesn't mean that God lacks care for you. He does care. Jesus might not calm every storm that you face and every storm that I face. He might might not take away diseases that riddle your body. But when you ask him for more of himself, he gives you more of himself. 
He gives you His peace. He gives you His joy. He gives you His righteousness. He gives you His presence. He's with you in the boat. He is always present with you. The Master is always present with His disciples, leading them. Always. There's a a scene in um, J.R.R. Tolkien's Return of the King. I feel like I'm a Presbyterian preacher. I've got to mention Tolkien at some point. Um, There's a scene in in Return of the King where uh, Frodo and Sam are traveling towards Mount Doom, and Sam feels like never before that I'm not going home. I'm probably going to die. But he's determined to stick with his master. He says, I'm going to stick with my master wherever he leads. And here's here's what what the, the passage says. It says, But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, being with his master. And he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. Look, the connection to our passage is that the presence of our Master Jesus in the midst of our suffering, it makes us resilient. It gives us strength. Jesus calms the storm. And it shows us His great power, right? His great sovereignty over creation. And He did after He just woke up. Like, I'm useless after I wake up. You know, I've got those weak hands. You know what I'm talking about? Can't grip anything right. And He calms a storm. But you know, the the most poignant moment of Jesus' care for us and the disciples is actually not in Him calming the storm. It's Him being asleep in the boat. That may sound very strange. But think about this. Why is he asleep? Why is Jesus asleep? He's asleep because he's tired. Why is he tired? He's tired because he's human. And why is he human? He's human because he cares more than anything about liberating us from sin and all of its consequences. The New City Catechism says that the Redeemer... Jesus must be truly human, that in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also might sympathize with our weaknesses. This is who is in the midst of our suffering that gives us strength. This is our master and we must stick with him wherever he leads. So where is Jesus leading? Where is he leading in the text? It took me years to to realize this. It's actually Jesus' idea to get in the boat. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side. It's his idea. Where is he going to go? He's going to the land of the the Gerasenes where he steps out onto the shore. And a man greets him, a man who is possessed by, um, is filled with this unclean spirit named Legion. This man who has been Uh, naked and dirty and chained up for years, uh, living outside community, living in the tombs amongst the dead. And a demon within him cries out, Jesus, Son of 
God Most High, have you come to torment me? And the demons asked Jesus' permission to, to not be done away with. They asked His permission to be sent into a herd of pigs. Think about that for a second. Demons asked Jesus' permission to be sent into a herd of pigs. That's how powerful Jesus is. And Jesus casts out the demon from the man, and the man is, is free. He's liberated. Now he has restored community, a restored life. That is who is in the boat with him, and then Jesus gets back in the boat and goes back to the other side. He came for that one man. Sometimes we forget who's in the boat with us. Again, the writer Dorothy Sayer, she says, the people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. They thought him too dynamic to be safe. We have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. The point of Jesus calming the storm was not simply to calm the storm. It's Jesus saying, I'm the God of the universe, the maker of all things, the Lord over all, the Lord over your hearts, and I am with you. I can do anything for you, and I will do anything for you. Even the demons know who I am, and they tremble before me. This is who is in the boat with us. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is always going somewhere. Where is he going? He's going to free a man enslaved by an unclean spirit. He's going to heal many. He's going to, to preach the good news. He's going to die. He's going to be raised to life again. He's going to ascend into heaven to make a place for us and to prepare the end of all things. Well, he will return and put an end to all storms and tears and confusion and cynicism and sin and death. Peter who, again, is probably the one who's asking this question, Lord, don't you care? He's the same one who, in his first epistle, says, cast all your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. Jesus, one of His last words on the cross, He hung there and He quoted from Psalm 22 and said, My God my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on the cross, he did not experience the care of his Father so that his Father could look to us in kindness, in steadfast love, in mercy, in grace, so that we may be set free from sin and enjoy life with God in his presence forever. The point is this, Jesus' care for us, it gives us freedom, freedom to rest in His presence without fear, without fear of, of anything that might come from temporary suffering, and without fear of, of having to go through eternal suffering outside of relationship with God. That's the freedom He gives. Faith in Jesus doesn't keep you from asking the, the big, hard, ugly questions like, Don't you, what are you doing? When is it going to stop? How long? He gives us the freedom to ask those things. But the faith that He gives us helps us to rest from the worry of it all. Because Jesus is with us 
in the boat. Okay, so what? So what? Jesus' care for us helps us care about what He cares about. Jesus' care for us helps us care about what He cares about. So what does He care about? He cares about what we think and what we say and what we do. I know that seems very simplistic, right? That's Theology 101. But He cares about what we think and we say we do. You know, we have a lot of sin that, um, as a friend of mine said, are iceberg sins. That, you know, 10% is what everyone else sees and then 90% is below the surface that does the real damage. Um, But think about this. Jesus never sinned once in His thoughts so that His perfect obedience, His perfect righteousness would be applied to you. And then He went to the cross and died an ugly death for your thoughts. Even if you lived your life, your whole life, and only sinned once, which is not true, right? But even if that was the case, even if you sinned one tiny, what you think, or one tiny little sin by what you think, or what you said to somebody, or, or, you know, what you did that, stealing that skittle off of the other you know, student's desk, um, that that is so heinous to God that the Son of God had to come and live a perfect life for you and die. We have such great sin, but we have a greater Savior. And He cares about what we think and what we say and what, what we do. He cares about what we think and how we think about our neighbors and about politics. He cares about what we say about our enemies and about ourselves. He cares about what we do to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrants, legal or illegal. He cares about what we do and say and think about the rich and the powerful. He cares about what we pray about and for whom we pray. He cares about sheep, fellow sheep. You know, as uh, shepherds of the church, we don't always care um, for for you as, as we ought, as you need. Um, we're not always there. We don't always say the right things. Sometimes we say the, the very wrong things. Um, and we can hurt you. And the question can be raised, well, if this shepherd doesn't care for me or seem to care as I need, does the shepherd care for me? And that's a really good question. And it should be asked. And here's the answer. Yes. Thank God, yes. He does. Because as shepherds of the church, we're, we're sheep in shepherd's clothing. Right? We're sheep just like you. And I need Jesus. We need Jesus to help us care about what He cares about. To care for other sheep. Jesus didn't have to come for you. Or for me, but He did. He didn't have to care, but He does. Because He's a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. T-Bone Burnett in his song, The Wild Truth, he wraps it up this way. He says, mercy is not consistent. It's like the wind. It goes where it will. Mercy is comic, and it's the only thing worth taking seriously. The disciples ask, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? It's the one who cares for you more than his own life and his own glory. It's the one who came to you and comes to you 
as you are in the midst of what you face and laid down his life for you and was raised to life again for you so that you may have eternal life and experience that now in God's presence with his peace, with his joy to give you hope in the midst of what may seem really hopeless.